if you hire a builder, you don't want to know exactly who's going to be laying each brick, right? When you hire someone to build your house. So if I sell a project that's a huge project, I think it's well within my rights to then get other people involved because you might need specialist assistance. You might have, you know, less capacity than what you can do on your own. to the Future Podcast, the show that explores the interesting overlap between design, marketing, and business. I'm Greg Gunn. When it comes to talking about money, a lot of us creative folks tend to squirm a little bit. We think that the work should speak for itself and that the cost of something directly correlates with how long it takes to produce. But that's not necessarily true. You see, there's lots of different ways to bill for your work. There's hourly, daily, fixed price, value-based, and even retainer. So then which one is the best? And is it actually fair and ethical to not bill by the hour? If these are questions you struggle with answering, then you're in the right podcast episode. Our guest today is a freelance web developer, author, and mentor. And beyond building custom websites, his specialty is pricing, how to think about it, and how to talk about it with your clients. As much as you want it to, Talent alone will not magically get you work, no matter what business you're in. You've got to market, you've got to sell, and you certainly can't shy away from talking about money. So do yourself and your business a favor and listen up, because we're about to go deep on pricing and change the way you think about it forever. Please enjoy our conversation with Tom Hurst. I, I'm super excited to talk to you today because I think we're going to geek out about pricing <laughs> and this is crazy because you are the second web developer that's really uh, owning that positioning and space of talking about hourly based pricing and pricing strategies, mm -hmm. you and Jonathan Stark. And I think what really caught my attention was your Twitter account yeah, and how you chained together a bunch of tweets to pretty much like write a book using Twitter, but just really <laughs> high level stuff, very easy to consume process. You're very logical, very methodical. Yeah. You leave a lot of uh, the fiery language out, the bombastic language, and it's just really like it's solid information. So I'd love to just dive deep in there with you, if that's okay with you. Yeah, sounds good. Okay, beautiful. Now, uh, for people who don't know who you are, can you introduce yourself? Yeah, sure. So my name's Tom Hurst, and I guess by trade, I'm a web developer, and I've been doing this freelance for 11 years now. And I've recently started creating um, digital products to help other freelancers get ahead. Mm -hmm. And what inspired you to start doing that? Um, I think people were asking for it, really. I mean, I have a few friends who were transitioning from design jobs, development jobs, wanting to get into the freelance space. And they kind of come into me naturally just saying, you know, Tom, you've been doing this a long time. Um, you know, what should I do, you know, in, in mm. these scenarios? And it kind of just felt like a natural move, really. Mm -hmm. And how did you learn about pricing? Is it just on-the-job training, figuring it out, 10 ways of doing it wrong and then figuring out the one way, the right way? Or did you take a course? Did you read a book? How did you come upon this knowledge? Yeah, so I would say that that's a bit of a 50-50. So a lot of it's through mm -hmm. experience. 
And um, a lot of it's through someone who we've already mentioned, Jonathan Stark's book, Hourly Billion is Nuts. Mm -hmm. That was a great primer for me. And it kind of crystallized a lot of what I've been doing already, trying to move away from selling units of time um, towards selling value and fixed-based pricing and things like that. Mm -hmm. Okay, so I'm going to give everybody a heads up. I think this is going to be an unusual podcast because usually... We're talking about stories and backstory and childhood trauma. <laughs> I think because we had this rare opportunity to talk to Tom, I'd really just like to really go point by point some of the big ideas that he shared. And I want to let you guys know he has a book. It's called the 10 Steps to Becoming a Better Freelancer. That's available. We'll provide the links uh, in the description below. But uh, that's the jumping off point. So you have these 10 steps to becoming a freelancer. Just so I don't make you memorize all of it. I'll just read them off, okay? Because <laughs> I took some notes, okay? Cool. So hold yourself accountable. Yeah. Refine your position, mm -hmm. which I want to talk to you a lot about positioning. Profile your ideal client. Mm -hmm. Make yourself known. Understand pricing deeply, which we're going to dive in, of course. Become a negotiator. Introduce structure. Automate and outsource. Do a good job. Hone your skills and stay relevant. And last but not least, seek balance. Okay, let's begin with understanding pricing deeply. Now, you say in the tweet and the things I was able to collect, there are different pricing models. Mm -hmm. Use any and all of them that are appropriate. It's not always a one size fits all, right? Yeah, yeah. That's my overarching you know, thoughts about pricing. Mm -hmm. So let's get into that. Like, what are the different types of ways in which you can charge for creative or uh, freelance work? Yeah, so we've got the main ones, really. So you've got hourly billing, mm -hmm. daily billing, um, fixed price, value-based pricing, and retainer. They're the, the five mm -hmm. ones that I talk about in my uh, pricing book. And yeah, my overarching view is that Whatever methodology you use, you should always consider the value that you're providing, whether that's, you know, the individual value that you provide as a differentiator, what's the value of hiring you specifically, or perhaps what's the value if the company doesn't hire you and things like that. So, yeah, that's that's how mm -hmm. that's my overriding, you know, thoughts. If I'm a new person, mm -hmm. I mean, even the idea of value to a person who's been in business for decades it's very subjective. It, yeah. it feels like it's kind of loose and amorphous. So how does one even begin to determine what my value is if I'm just, say, one or two years out of school? Yeah, I think you've got to look at, like like what kind of touched on before, so what is mm -hmm. your differentiators? What makes you stand out? What's different from this company hiring you to the next best option and things like that? Mm -hmm. And then what you've got to do is then convey that to the client and let them see that, you know, with their own eyes. Okay. Uh, I'm going to pull you into my world, which is uh, people who do graphic design. Mm -hmm. And so uh, something that a lot of graphic designers do is they make a logo. So I graduate from school. I have a portfolio. And when you say what difference differentiates me in relative to the market, there's a lot of people making logos for $5, literally, mm -hmm. to people who charge million dollars for a logo how do i know where i fit in there yeah that's a good question i mean it's obviously you've got to look at your track record right you've got to look at your mm -hmm. credibility your expertise what can you show that you've done before proof of work things like that what's your standing in you know the space that you're working in um obviously if you're a specialist which goes back to the refining your position um you know chapter of the book if you're a specialist, you can charge more, right? Because you're, you know, zoning in on that type of client. So if you're doing logos for a specific type of business, 
then you're obviously going to be different to someone who's a jack of all trades. Mm -hmm. Is it then your uh, recommendation and position that uh, people should start to find their niche and specialize? Yeah, I would agree overall, especially um, in the beginning. I think that's what a lot of freelancers struggle with. They just think that they're going to cut out a lot of the market by going so niche and so refined. And it's pretty scary. And I understand that. Um, but yeah, I think the sooner that you niche down, the better. Mm -hmm. Now, this is one of those things where you may have transitioned out of doing service work, but if you're still doing service work, mm -hmm. how have you positioned yourself as a web developer? Yeah. So I'm still doing service work alongside the products. Okay. Um, so yeah, I've got a bit of you know, on the ground experience still. Um, so yeah, when I first started, I thought, you know, I'll just be a web developer, right? I'll serve every mm -hmm. single type of client, anyone that comes my way, whether they're a plumber, electrician, dog walker, whatever. And the way that I specialized was to focus down into WordPress. So, you know, WordPress that is a, you know, a CMS that people can use to build their own websites, but you can also take it a bit farer and do more custom and advanced stuff. So mm -hmm. the first thing that I did was just zone in on that and really heavily specialize in WordPress and try to become the go-to freelance WordPress developer. And that's, that's where it all, you know, started to really kick in for me. And did you go further in terms of niching or is that niche enough for you? Yeah, I, I went a little further in terms of mm -hmm. I wouldn't do theme work. So I would only work with people who had slightly larger budgets who wanted to do like custom development. So let's say mm -hmm. they wanted um, a custom integration or specific functionality that you couldn't get from an existing theme or plugin, then I would be the guy for that. And that's the type of client that I, you know, focused on. Okay. Just so in case uh, somebody's uninitiated and they're listening to this conversation, WordPress is, um, it, 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 it's a content management system. That's mm -hmm. a CMS part. And there are themes readily available for like free or hundreds of dollars. And one of the things that Tom just said is that if you wanted him to adapt and plug in content to an existing theme, you're not the right person for him. Those tend to be lower budget projects and yeah. smaller scale clients who really don't want to have a bespoke site. Now, WordPress, uh, for a lot of people, that's all it is. But if you work with a talented developer like yourself, it can be anything you want because you can pretty much customize everything on the back end, including the dashboard and how you look at things, right? Yeah, exactly. I mean, there's not a lot of things that I've not built on WordPress over the years, like from really like, um, I don't know, brochure websites up to, you know, proper software as a service products like um, intranets and things like that. So yeah, it's really versatile and it's uh, served me well. Mm -hmm. Now, would you recommend that, uh, like say, because we're on this topic here, a WordPress developer who's doing high-end custom work to then go one layer deeper and say, I only want to work with sports companies? Yeah, that could work. You know, you can specialize in terms of the horizontal and the vertical at the same time. I think there's a lot mm -hmm. of value in that. Okay, beautiful. Now, I'm curious today, what methods of pricing do you like to use the most when you're pricing your services? Yeah, sure. So, I mean, the, the main thing for me is I, I try to go for value-based pricing. If, mm -hmm. if the business has tangible results that they can share or they want to share, because this might differ between the UK and the US, but sometimes value-based pricing as a methodology is a, is a hard sell. Mm -hmm. um, a lot of people don't really know what a lead costs them. So then you kind of have to fall back, you know, to some other methodologies. And that's kind of what I talk about in, in the book. Um, mm -hmm. So, yeah, 
if I can't get the value-based pricing thing working, then I'll go towards a fixed price and I'll, mm-hmm. and I'll do, I'll do the things that I talked about before, like try and analyze how valuable is this engagement, you know, try and estimate the, um, you know, the, the outcomes, the financial outcomes, try and estimate what someone else might charge them, who's the second best option and things like that. So it's kind of a, a semi-value-based price is, is what I would go for after that. And then I would fall down to perhaps day rates if I wanted a bit of a cash, in, cash injection. Um, mm-hmm. But I, I have one rule with a day rate though. And I, I don't mm-hmm. do day rate that's eight hours. A day is a day. And uh, that's they're, they're kind of my three go-to models. Okay. Um, I, I'd like to talk to you about value-based pricing because that's the, the holy grail. Everybody wants that. It's the most complicated, so mm-hmm. most misunderstood thing. So we'll go to like fixed base pricing. I think I read somewhere in your in your tweet or in your site somewhere that it said something like if you have to do research to write a proposal, then you probably need to do some kind of phase engagement where you're doing discovery. Yeah. So in a case like this, you, let's just say like, okay, these clients are not that sophisticated. I'm not going to be able to do value-based pricing. I'm going to do a, a fixed project fee. Mm-hmm. Um, talk me through a scenario where you're going to do this discovery thing and how does that work for you? Yeah, sure. So if you're going to do a fixed price, you need a brief, right? And it needs to be pretty specific. So yeah. if, if you don't have that, then you, 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 don't want to write, you don't want to write one for free, right? So that's, that's the place. Mm-hmm. So you're going to say, look, I can help you get this tangible outcome, um, but you're going to have to pay me for it. So let's say a discovery pre-project might, you might put a, a price on it for, I don't know, 5000 5, and then you would mm-hmm. do you would do that first. You would get then to the end result of you do all the discovery, you do all the research, you do all the interviews with the client, you'd find out what their requirements are. And at the end of that, you would then present them with, you know, this document that then allows them to get a price on the main project. Okay. Um, that aligns with a lot of the things that I teach people to do. So the discovery, mm-hmm. you're getting paid. It is real work. You kind of have to figure out a lot of different things, interviews, figuring out outcomes, researching competitors, all this kind of stuff. And now, it, theoretically, you're going to be able to come away with a very creative brief. These are the outcomes and goals. This is how we'll measure success. And then now you'll leave me to go and build this thing. Yeah. Do you run into this thing where they agree initially to the 5,000 pounds or dollars mm-hmm. and then... It turns out the scope is actually really big and the price you float in front of them for uh, building this thing, let's say it's 45000 like, oh my God, mm-hmm. I, I didn't think it was going to be like that. And if that happens, how do you deal with that? Yeah, it, in all honesty, I've never had that happen because what I try mm-hmm. to do is try to set expectations. I just think it's only fair. So let's say if I can try and give a rough ballpark before so I'm going to say, look, it might be between twenty and 40,000. But if we do this brief and this discovery, you know, we'll have that peace of mind. We'll mitigate risk. And then we'll be able to give you an exact price within that range after that point. So usually it always works out. But what I always try to say is if, you know, my price is too expensive for you after this pre-project, then you can go to someone else and get a quote if, if you like. That's fine. But a lot of the time, if someone does the pre-project with you, you know, they're going to do the main project too. Yeah. Okay. A lot of good points here. I just want to highlight some things for our audience to understand. So you're asking them for a commitment upfront mm-hmm. to put some faith in you and also to mitigate risk because if this process doesn't go well, they've invested five and not 
45, and it's a good way to kind of test the waters, if you will. And you've also done price bracketing here. You're saying mm-hmm. it's going to cost five to start. And then most likely, based on what I've heard so far on a very preliminary basis, in my experience, it's going to be between 20 and 45. So those are brackets. And so now they have a range. So if they're thinking 20 on the low end is way too much, they'll stop the process right there. Exactly. Eliminating some friction down the line. And you're very open and honest and transparent and you speak about it very clearly so that there's no weirdness and no uh, misgivings or mistrust that you're developing. I love that uh, all, all people should try to do this if you're doing fixed-based pricing is to have some kind of discovery initial investment because it primes the client to say, I'm a professional. You have to respect the time and the effort and the energy and what I'm doing is valuable. And you're also getting them ready to spend more money. Because yeah. if you just say sign on the dotted line, you've never heard of me before for 45K, that's a big, scary decision. And there's a lot of risk involved. So you're reducing risk by doing a phase engagement and including discovery and getting paid for your thinking and research. So I love that. And, and has it happened? Uh, I'm not saying never, but has it ever happened where you do do that discovery? And they're like, uh, we, we change our mind. Something else is happening. Give us the creative brief, the goals, and everybody's happy and they walk away. Yes, some I think one or two times it's happened where mm-hmm. they might think it normally happens. It's not it's not about the money. It's normally about what we've uncovered, and they want to rethink their strategy overall as opposed to you know getting sticker shock from the the actual what it could cost. Mm-hmm. There's something else that um, you're also tapping into, which is called the loss aversion bias, <laughs> because once they spend the five thousand dollars, even if they totally don't love you one hundred percent, they're like, well. Better the devil you know than the devil you don't. To start again, it's just a human bias, right? It's a cognitive bias. So I've spent money with you. I like the way you talk. I like yeah. the things that you're doing. I get a sense of trust. There's a couple of things we might not agree on, but it's better just to keep moving forward. And so these are all like very practical business tips that anybody listening to this should start to think about how is my process working so they can map onto this. Now, let's get into value-based pricing. <laughs> Because I, I think this is where it kind of gets really complicated. Yeah. So let's say, uh, like, how do you take me through a typical scenario? It doesn't have to be like uh, any kind of specific client detail that would uh, reveal too much. But take me through one, how it typically sounds like in your world. Yeah, sure. So like, I'll caveat this with what I said before. I think value-based pricing mm-hmm. is a bit of a harder sell in the UK than it is in the US. Mm-hmm. But you can do it with the right clients. It normally needs to be someone who is, you know, a medium business size plus. I've noticed, you know, if, if, you, if you're talking mm-hmm. with like mom and pop stars, as, the, as you say in America, um, yep. you're going to have a struggle. Uh, but yeah, the way, the, way, the way that I would try and approach is if, if I think the client's a good fit and I think that they're perceptive to a value-based price, I'll start the process of, you know, asking the questions. So, you know, um, what outcomes are they looking for? Um, how much do they turn over? How much are they making? Um, what successes are they seeing currently? Um, you know, how much does that success currently cost them? How much does lead acquisition cost? And try and try and extract all the information that I need that would help me to construct a value-based price. And if it's not happening, if it's not flowing, and I think that it's going nowhere, then I'm just going to try and do my own calculations and give them a fixed price while considering, you know, the things that I have uncovered. Yeah. Okay. Uh, first question for you is, how do you define a medium-sized business? How do you know they're a medium-sized business? What qualifies that? 
Yeah, so I'm, I'm looking at how big they are, how many people they employ. Um, okay. we, have a, we have a website in, uh, in the UK called Companies House where you can look up the accounts of any limited company. So it would be like an LLC, looking up an LLC mm-hmm. in, in the US. And you can kind of, by looking at their accounts, kind of see how much turnover they're making and things like that. Um, look at their existing website. Do they have any premises? Things like that. So I'm already mm-hmm. thinking about all this stuff before I enter any um, negotiation. Mm. So for you, would you consider uh, a number of employees the minimum? Like if they had 20 employees, that's a sizable enough company or if they have multiple offices or they have a big footprint. Those are like, I just want to know, like specifically for you, what triggers mm. beyond this point, they're medium size up and it, I can approach them in this way. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's probably a combination of all those things, like a certain mm-hmm. amount of turnover, like, you know, a few hundred thousand Um let's say, yeah, a couple of offices or at least one, you know, fixed office, 20 staff mm-hmm. plus. Yeah, I would I would probably roll with that figure. Okay, very good. And the thing that people struggle with the most is like, how do you begin even that conversation and getting them to trust you enough on an initial call to even disclose their revenue goals or turnover rates? And that's a bridge that a lot of people don't know how to broach. So how, how do you begin that conversation so it feels natural? Is there a little pre-dialogue, a little warm-up that you do before that? How do you get them to start to open up? Yeah, I mean, we'd normally start with maybe one or two emails and then we'd get on a call pretty mm-hmm. quickly. And I would just try, try and keep it like 30 minutes, just try and let them talk as much as possible, essentially. Um, the way that I kind of phrase it is like how, you know, you, you just tell me about your business tell me, and, and then go, go deeper from there. So after I know a bit more about their business, tell them, I want them to tell me more about the project. Why do they want to do this project? Why do they want yeah. to do it now? Um, how did they find me as well? And then we can start trying to build that picture of value. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, it, do you have any kind of go-to tricks? Because uh, a lot of people are good at uh, building up that and then it's a hard, hard wall that they hit in terms of like, uh, so like, for example, like, um, uh, how much is the lifetime customer value for you? And they would just bring that out of nowhere. And the other person's like, wait a minute, I know what's going on. You're mm. trying to gouge me on the price based on what a customer is worth to me. And so do you have any kind of uh, tips or advice on how to transition from, yeah, we were talking about things that are pretty, like what most people would ask. And then now I'm really going to get into your business. Yeah, I think I would kind of phrase the start of that conversation by just saying, look, I, when you succeed, I succeed. You know, I need this information to do the best job that I can for you. You know, if mm-hmm. I'm if I'm giving technical strategy, I need to know about, you know, the business metrics, if we're going to make this work well. And then just, just go at it from that angle and just try and soften them up a little bit. But to be honest... A lot of people, they either don't have it or they're happy to share it anyway. So it's kind of, it's not too difficult to get the conversation going and start to talk about these figures or at least get estimates. Mm-hmm. Great. Okay, let's let's go back to one of the other five methods of pricing projects that uh, I think most people are familiar with and is probably, I would say, the majority of people price projects this way. And it's based on hourly Mm-hmm. What is your take on this? Like, why is this the worst pricing methodology? Yeah, I just, there's, there's, a, there's a number of reasons, really. And mm-hmm. uh, obviously, Jonathan wrote the book about it. And it's, you know, the, the misalignment of client and freelancer is, is the main one for me. 
because obviously the longer that it takes the freelancer, the more they get paid. And, you know, there's just no incentive really to be efficient at all. And yeah, it's just, I mean, there's a lot of other reasons that we could go into like the paperwork, the justific- mm-hmm. justification of timesheets and things like that. Um, so yeah, it's something that I moved away from really early in my freelance career. Same here. Uh, for people who are listening to this who are doing hourly bill billing, what do you think, how do they get over this mindset? Because uh, I get this all the time. As much as you and I will talk about this, there are mm. a lot more people who are like, no, this is the way. This is the fair way. This yeah. is the only way. It's the only ethical way. Uh, so there's obviously some kind of mental um, mindset limit, limiting belief that's holding them back. Uh, how do you help people get from there to like the next stage up in terms of like, say, even uh, daily billing or fixed pricing? Yeah. I mean, I think you've just mentioned a really good thing there. Like it's about moving up those ladders. I think moving from that hourly billing mindset to to day rate is a really good step to take. Just as long as you do what I said before, don't, don't make, don't make day rate eight hours because you're just hourly billing, but for a cheaper rate, essentially when you do that. Um, Mm -hmm. so yeah, that's, that, that's the way I encourage people to start. So, you know, hourly billing, think daily billing, can I sell that? then move on to, you know, your fixed price and your value base. So it's working your way up. Okay. Um, when, when it comes to, say, fixed pricing, you, you wrote down a bunch of uh, tips. And they're, like I said, I really like how structured your your thinking is in terms of it's no nonsense. And this is a, it's almost like a recipe, do this and do that. Can you talk a little bit about the, the things you should be doing if you're doing fixed pricing? Yeah, sure. So like we kind of touched on before, you need, you need mm-hmm. some kind of outcomes some defined outcomes, um, whether you've done that in a pre-project or you've been provided by that, that's, you know, essentially what, what you need. That's the blueprint that you're all going to work to that you can all reference. And there's no ambiguity there. Um, you're getting these things for this price. So yeah, that's the main thing, the brief. And then the second thing is get some money up front every time, like do not lift a finger until you've got some money in the bank because in my experience, no one's, you know, fully committed until they've got some skin in the game. Right. Okay. Uh, I know what I wanted to ask you here. So you've worked with the client in a way that you can figure out scope. Mm-hmm. And you're clear on the brief and the outcomes. Yeah. How do you then know what to price it at? What are you basing your own internal math on? Yeah, so... It's kind of like what I said before. So whatever pricing methodology I use, I'm thinking about value. So I'm using my own experience of what similar projects have cost. I'm looking mm-hmm. at, I mean, I know a lot of developers as well. I know a lot of other freelance developers. So we kind of have these pricing discussions too. So I kind of know what they're pricing. So I've got that behind me. But then on a per project basis, a per client basis, I'm trying to analyze value all the time. So even if I don't get the metrics that I need to do a true value-based price, I can still kind of think how much is this going to be worth to someone? And I'm just building that picture all the time. So I'm kind of thinking like, um, let's say they want to get something done next week. If they, it is, how important is that? Let's see, can I charge a bit more than that? They want to get it done, you know, really quickly. That's obviously worth a lot to them. And, you know, just, just constantly building that picture of value and, uh, and then just, just giving a price and see, seeing where it sits. Time for a quick break, but we'll be right back with more from Tom. 
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. Welcome back to our conversation with Tom Hurst. I love this uh, because you're European, and yeah. usually when I talk about money, yeah. the Europeans push back real hard. They're like, that's so American capitalist, you pig kind of thing. So we are talking very similar things. So I, I'm going to assume some of the voices that I usually hear and allow you to kind of respond to them. These are not my true feelings, but I hear this all the time. Okay, Tom? So okay. brace for impact. I'm just going to warn you here. Okay. So are you saying, Tom that the price in which you charge has no relationship to the amount of work that you're putting into it? Ooh, that's a good one. Um, I would just say, no, it's completely disconnected. Like, it'll take as long as it takes. And and that's it. The price is the price. And is that... I'm talking as a creative person, not the client. So is that is that ethical to do that? I mean, isn't really like... Uh, you're just like, it's all BS and puffery then, isn't it? Oh, I mean, it's it's only worth what someone will pay for it, right? End of the day, I've got people queuing up for my services. So if you don't want to pay it, then someone else will. Okay, so let me, let me clarify here then. So basically the same amount of work that you put in for one type of client because uh, their clients are more valuable, their customers are more valuable, uh, you would charge them more than the same amount of work you would do for a smaller client. And how, how do you... How do you resolve that? Yeah, but every project is different. No project's 100% the same. So why should every price be 100% the same? Mm -hmm. And so then are you just taking advantage because they're they're worth more and they can afford more to just charge them more money? No, but I'll probably make them more money. Hmm. Okay. <laughs> you kind of see what I have to deal with, right? <laughs> I just let you know. It gets much worse than that, but I'm just, I'm trying to like not go full crazy on you here. Okay. <laughs> that was so this good. is the, yeah, this is the mindset that a lot of people have that is saying you're taking advantage of people that essentially, you know, let's say, um, and, and people are stuck on this idea of, of time and money and they tie those two together. Yeah. So if you spend a hundred hours, whether the project's a little bit different or not, you're saying because it's worth more to this person, you're going to charge more and some smaller client and they uh, you're going to charge less and they can't get over that. Like, mm. isn't your w worth and value to the world fixed? Isn't it tied to a certain amount of units of no. time or effort? But it's situational, right? 
like I said mm-hmm. before, every project, th- there's not one project that's exactly the same. Some projects might need more commitment than others, but you know, some projects will make the business more money than others. And sometimes you don't know that in advance. So it's, yeah, the, the, the link doesn't have to be so rigid between time and uh, value and money. Mm-hmm. Let's talk about another concept here. And uh, you say, if it's more risky for you to work with the client, the price mm-hmm. should be higher. And if it's more risky for the client to work with you, the price should be lower. And yep. that the idea is the price mirrors the risk. Uh, help people understand it. Expand on that idea, please. Yeah. So you want to talk about whether, who is it most risky to do business with on this engagement? So if it's more risky for the client, then the price will be lower. But if it's more risky for you, then the price will be um, higher. Mm-hmm. The thing about risk is that um, Peter Drucker said uh, all, all profit comes from risk. Whoever yeah. holds the largest share of risk and they make the most money. And the easiest way to understand this is to look at the stock market. Whenever you're working with a financial investor, advisor, they're going to say, how much risk do we want to tolerate? So if you invest in high growth um, funds, that means there's a lot of risk. You could lose it all. They can go bankrupt. And tech stocks tend to be like that. And Bitcoin, especially, you know, it's skyrocketed like thousands and thousands of percentage yeah. of uh, return. But it all disappeared tomorrow because governments shut down or something else happens. Mm-hmm. And so this is a great way to understand it. Versus if you put it into like a mutual fund, slow interest, it's like what your grandma and your parents would put money into. It's going to give you 4 or 5% year over year, which is still a pretty good return. But it's not going to give you 2,000% return. Now, we understand that conceptually in the market, but in terms of like freelancer to client, how do we measure and understand risk? Like, I understand it conceptually, but practically, how do you apply that? Yeah. So, I mean, you've got to think if you're obviously the best option, if they're going to get the, you know, the best service or the best results from you, then, Mm -hmm. you know, it's a risk not to hire you. So you've got to be thinking like, what, how good is that next best option? How, how much risk's involved in hiring them over me and things like that. Mm-hmm. So then you start then building then again that picture of value and the price starts going up or down depending on your answers to that. Mm-hmm. And how do you know relative to your competition? Because oftentimes the clients will ask directly, point blank, who else is bidding on this project? And they will not tell you uh, most of the time. Sometimes they do tell you. So how do you even know if you're the best or if you're uh, at the bottom of a list? Mm. I mean, that's kind of different to how I do it because we don't really pitch um, in the development world. It's kind of, especially in the freelance world, it's more just, this is the brief, uh, this is the right. price kind of thing. So yeah, the, the way, um, can you just repeat that question again, Chris? Sorry. Yes. Um, you were saying relative to your competition, mm-hmm. uh, if you're the, already the best, then you can charge a little bit more because it's less risky to work with you. Whereas yeah. if they hire somebody of Fiverr or 100 or 99 designs, they, that's like a fly-by-night kind of situation. So yeah. they're, they're going to assume a lot of risk, so the price will go down because you're more of a sure thing, your reputation, your experience. But I don't know who I'm competing against oftentimes. So how do I know? Yeah, you're going to be looking at your position in the market, really. So okay. if a client comes to you, and obviously they know you are, they're already aware of you. They've not just picked like a load of names off the list and uh, just getting prices off the mall. There might be someone that comes recommended to you and things like that. And obviously that's all lowering and lowering the risk. Mm-hmm. Okay. So let's, let's move over to positioning. 
Mm-hmm. We talked a little bit about it, and you had said that if you're not specialized enough, yeah. it's, it's very kind of hard to see the value that you bring. So what other kind of tips can you give? Because this is a tricky subject to talk about. How do I refine my positioning or how I'm positioned in the marketplace so that I'm seen as lower risk or more credible or more experienced? What, what kind of tips uh, and advice do you have for that? Yeah, so the first thing that I would suggest is to find out who your ideal client is, work that out, do some research on that and work backwards from there. So try and think about what their problems are. Try and think how your skills can answer them. Um, build a picture of credibility by all the things that you've done before. So the clients that you've worked with um, get social proof from you know testimonials and things like that. Mm-hmm. Okay, so now you're talking about point number three from the 10 steps to becoming a better freelancer, mm-hmm. uh, which is to profile your ideal client. Yeah. If I don't, if I'm not familiar with this because obviously if you come from the UX web development world, you totally understand what that means to profile a person, a user, or an ideal client. If I'm a graphic designer, what, what does that mean, profile your ideal client? Can you take me through a little bit of like the process of how you profile a client? Yeah, sure. So you wanted to try and find out who is the perfect customer for your service, essentially. So mm-hmm. you, want, you want to try and find out, you know, who they are, um, what businesses do they work for, um, even, even drilling down to things like, are they a man or a woman? What kind of age are they? And things like that. And then from that, you can kind of build a picture of, you know, who the ideal client is and then how you can market your services towards them. Mm. Okay, so you're building, it's like, I would describe this process to people, like if you're a forensics person, a criminal profiler, like uh, these special uh, agents, you know, a crime yeah. has been committed, and they start to build a profile. It's like, uh, this this person had to be strong, they carry these things, So, and they're a certain stature, it's a man, it, it, they're in their mid-30s, mm-hmm. and uh, you know, they like chocolate chip cookies, whatever it is. You have to get clarity on who you're going to serve. Yeah, Because exactly. ultimately... And I think Dale Carnegie talked about this. He's like, I like strawberries and cream, but when I go fishing, it has no impact on what I use because <laughs> the fish likes worms. And so you need to understand the triggers and what motivates people, what kind of pain points and challenges they're going through yeah. so that you can be the perfect answer to their problems versus just like, I do this and well, nobody cares about that. Exactly. So getting clear uh, and profiling your ideal client allows you to speak their language to address their pain points and their challenges. And that's what we're talking about here, right? Yeah, exactly. It's about how you're going to get them from where they are now to where they want to be. Right. Okay. So for you, who is your ideal client as a web developer? Yeah, sure. My ideal client is someone preferentially who's got more money than they have time. So they're willing to invest Um, they know quality, um, obviously like what we touched on before, they want a custom website. They don't just want to work with themes or off the shelf products. Um, I'm thinking someone who's maybe more than just a one person business. So, you know, like what we spoke about before, medium sized plus, and yeah, that's kind of, that's kind of what I'm looking for. Mm. Okay. When we were doing service work as blind, we described our ideal client as the discerning entrepreneur with a fast growth company mm-hmm. with $100 million or more in annual billings. That was our ideal client. Yeah. Yeah. That's really okay. specific. Yeah. We try to because 
it's interesting. Like when you when you try to bake a cake for somebody that you don't know, it's quite difficult. Yeah. And the more specific you get, it's like, oh, I know your preferences. It's a multi-layered cake, and you have certain dietary restrictions. It makes a lot of sense. Okay. Uh, I'd like to move on to uh, one of my favorite things to talk about is people hire who they know, like, and trust. So number four on your ten steps to becoming a better freelancer is make yourself known. Yeah. How does one do that in in today's uh, market? Yeah. So. The way that I would do it now, if I was starting today, would be to build an audience on social media. And I would I would do it that way, definitely. And I've kind of gone into this uh, realm a little bit in on Twitter, and that's how we uh, that's how we met. Um, yeah. So yeah, it, it it works really well. Okay. What what tips and advice can you give to people who are on social media but have like two hundred followers, and they can't figure out? Ah, I've just been posting things, but nobody cares. Nobody's it's not growing at all. Yeah, I think the, the number one thing that I found is consistency. So if you can mm-hmm. stick to, you know, doing, let, let's take Twitter as the example. If you're, going to be, if you're going to be trying to grow, you want to be doing between four and 10 tweets per day. And it sounds a lot because it is a lot. But if you want to see that growth, then you've, you've just got to put the time in. Um, mm-hmm. Another tip would be to engage as well because it's a social media, right? It's not just about saying you know, what, what you want to say to the world. It's about listening to what other people have got to say too and striking up conversations, getting into the DMs and really building that rapport. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I noticed that about you, that you actually are pretty active and you're responding to things that you don't don't write yourself. And it's one of those critical things. It, it is called social media, not anti-social media. Yeah. Conversations require two parts, some talking and more listening. And that's the combination ratio I like personally. And so if you're, okay, so if somebody's going to be like, Tom, four to 10 or four to 10 <laughs> tweets a day. And how do you, where does that content come from? Uh, what are you writing about? Where do you get your ideas from? Like, aren't you going to run out of things to say? What are your, what's your take on that? Yeah. So, I mean, it's easier to write content when it's something that you're doing every day anyway. So if, if yeah. an interesting situation happens, you know, with a client or something like that, I might riff off that and make um, a tweet about it. Um, but I mean, I'm constantly thinking about tweet ideas. Let's say if I'm out for a walk with the dog, I'm just writing notes, writing, you know, little ideas that I can reuse and things like that. Um, and yeah, one good thing that I like to do too is to steal from myself. So mm-hmm. let's say a tweet's done really well. It might be the format that I steal or the topic that I steal. And I'll, I'll rewrite it again in, in a slightly different way. So obviously that then boosts up the amount of content that you've got. Mm-hmm. Okay. So how much time percentage wise or hours do you spend on cultivating, writing, thinking, responding to things on social media? I would say it's about between one and two hours a day on average. Um, so I mean, I schedule tweets quite a lot. That normally takes me between 20 minutes and an hour, depending on how long the tweets are. If I do a thread, like the, the pricing one that we talked about, um, that yeah. that took that took like an hour in its own right, so yeah, uh, about between one and two hours a day. So it's an investment. Yeah, and to the people who are going to push back on this, like, um, but you're not doing the work then. If you're spending one to two hours a day, well, isn't that taking you away from your craft? Yeah, yeah, it is. But it's also getting me more leads for better clients in the future. So it's all a compounding effort. Yeah. 
I, I think creative people especially suffer from this because uh, if you go to four years school, no class or hardly any class ever tells you that you have no business if you don't work on getting business. Yeah. That marketing and sales are essential to all businesses, not just creative businesses. And to avoid that purely based on the fallacy that your talent will get you work magically, <laughs> um, that that's a, a kind of a road to this financial ruin, I think. Yeah, you've got to do the work to get work. That's what I always say. You've got to put that yeah. time in to do the marketing, the sales and, you know, the rapport building, the network building and things like that. It's uh, mm-hmm. unfortunately, it's not just the people who do the best work that always get the work. You know, you need to know how to do the marketing. You need you need all that side of stuff. You need the business skills as well. Yeah, it's actually rarely the case that the best people are the most successful financially speaking. Mm-hmm. You may have a small time small town hero who's an amazing musician artist and you're thinking why aren't they on the tv show on music videos and have millions of followers and on the tour bus and it's because it requires certain skill sets for people to become really really successful talent definitely part of it Um, hard work timing ambition and drive and the ability to be marketable Um, There are amazing singers who have incredible voices that never go anywhere. They're background singers because they just don't have that it factor. They're not that marketable. Mm -hmm. And so people need to become aware of that. Okay. I have one more um, thing to dive in with you. It may be be the scariest one. I don't know. Let's see what (laughs) happens here. Okay. Now you're saying something here about uh, being a freelancer and yeah. We may have um, terminology uh, debate there, but I'm not going to go there just yet. And you're going to say in point eight, automate and outsource. Mm-hmm. So, Tom, you book a project. Yeah. It's fixed base. You've done discovery. You got paid five grand. Mm-hmm. They've agreed to $36,000 for the web development. Yeah. And now you're going to give it to someone else. So the pushback, people are going to say, like, wait a minute. Didn't the clients buy... You, your talent, your unique way of doing things, and you're just going to hand it over to someone else? Wait, what? Love for you to respond. Yeah, well, I think that's that's my prerogative, right? Like, if you hire a builder, you don't question, you don't want to know exactly who they're going to be laying, who's going to be laying each brick, right, uh, when you hire someone to build your house. So if I sell a project that's a huge project, like 36,000 square, a pretty big project, you know, I think it's well within my rights to then get other people involved because you might need specialist assistance. Um, you might have, you know, less capacity than what you you can do on your own. So yeah, I think it's, I don't think that's unfair whatsoever. Mm. So from the creative world, maybe less in the web development world. Yeah. You know, people are like, no, they hired me for my style, my rendering, uh, the way I paint or the way I illustrate. How can I give that to someone else? And now they have some issues with that. Yeah, I you think it, it, it's, it's different between the creative, mm-hmm. uh, the design stuff, because obviously if they wanted your specific style, then that's a little bit different. But I suppose in both worlds, if you are overseeing that project, if you're directing that, so let's say you're art directing the overall project, then I don't think it's unfair to get someone under your guidance on that project. Yeah. So the thing I'm trying to help people with is to understand it this way, is that 
clients are not necessarily paying for your hands to touch the work. Mm-hmm. They're paying for your stamp of approval that this meets or exceeds the standards in which you've agreed to. Yeah. And so when they look at a body of work, they're not literally thinking uh, Tom or Chris is working on all of the pixels everywhere that they see or every line of code is is inputted by their hands and fingers. They're saying, we like that. We want that for us. And so my usual statement to clients is, if you want that result, then you have to trust me to do it my way. Because if we do it your way, this is not going to work out. Mm-hmm. That makes a lot of sense. Right. And it's still, it's a gigantic conceptual hurdle for creative people to say like, okay, so you're saying charge different rates for the same amount of work. Uh, charge clients based on what they can afford. And then when you get the work, feel free to give it to whoever you want. So there's a lot of problems that uh, their their head's probably on fire right now. Like, this is not working for me. It's like cognitive dissonance overload. But when you start to realize that this is how the world works, then you'll start to become more successful business-wise. If we think about films, which is one of the most collaborative mediums out there, uh, the writer didn't direct the film. The director didn't write the script, and the actors didn't write their words. It's a lot of people coming together to to make this very high form of art when it goes right. We have no problems understanding that, accepting it, and loving it. Sometimes we mistakenly believe that the characters, the actors, uh, that that's really who they are, and they wrote these lines. Like, I love when you said that. Well, they didn't write that line. You need to understand. Like you said, sometimes you, you may need to assemble a team of specialists who are actually more qualified and skilled than you are doing that very specific thing yeah. for the benefit of the client, even at a greater cost to you, because that's the promise you made, right? Exactly. And I think like they wouldn't, the client wouldn't want to know if you hired an accountant to, um, you know, do the billing for the project. So why does it matter if you, you know, get another designer in or another developer? Yeah. I appreciate you sharing all your um, knowledge and time with us and talking about pricing. What else are you working on? What's next after this pricing for freelancers? So I'm actually working on um, a course right now. It's called the Personal Website Playbook. And it's basically a resource for freelancers to, well, not just freelancers really, like anyone who spends a lot of time online to improve their personal website, to get more opportunity from it. Um, so yeah, that's that's mm-hmm. the focus right now. Okay. Uh, this is interesting. Do you do you touch on how to build an effective sales page? Yeah, crafting an offer is going to be one of the modules. Okay, can you give us some some high level, or is it too early uh, to give us some high level uh, insights or tips uh, that you're going to be diving deeper into? Yeah, sure. So, I mean, the kind of things I want to teach is um, you know choosing the best tools to assemble you know a personal website how to structure pages mm-hmm. to increase conversions, um, style and layout strategies that help, you know, people actually read your content rather than just breeze past it all. Um, mm-hmm. what, what pages to include, um, what to show on them. Cause I think a lot of people struggle with that. Um, and then like how to like place trust signals on your website. Like we, we, t- we touched mm. on this earlier about, um, right. you know, using photos, you know, get it, getting that headshot high up the page getting, you know, social proof in there, you know, the reviews, testimonials, things like that. Um, and then just overall trying to build your own personal brand awareness through your website, um, which which just builds trust and gets people to get in touch with you to hire you for work. Mm-hmm. And did you say this was a course or is this a book? 
No, this is going to be a video cast this time. Mm-hmm. And do you have any ideas on when it's going to be done? It sounds very exciting, things that people are going to want to learn from. When, when is this going to be done and, and how much is it going to be? Yeah, so um, you can pre-order it right now for $24, so I'm keeping it pretty accessible. Um, mm-hmm. But it's going to be launched on the 1st of February and it'll be $49 at full price. That sounds like a steal. I think yeah. it needs to be more than that, no? Yeah, yeah. I think I've got a bit of a, a pricing tactic. So um, I've okay. seen I've seen this one a few times where the markup is that it sells after launch. You just put it up and up and up and up as, as the demand gets right. higher. Um, because yeah. obviously what I want to do is get that social proof initially, get people to mm-hmm. use it, uh, get people to review it. And yeah, the people who, I want to make it accessible to the people who want to get it at the cheap price as well. So I want to try and cover all the bases. So yeah, it will be going up eventually after after launch. I love it. That's a principle that we encourage people to do. It's called the reverse sale. Instead of yeah. the price going down, the price goes up. So yeah. early early movers, early adopters get the best price. And so mm-hmm. you're not sitting around like, I'll wait for it to go on sale. Oh, well, that's not going to happen. It's going to just going to increase in price as there's greater social proof. And there's, there's evidence out in the real world that people are using it and getting real results, right? Yeah, that's the exact play. Okay, Tom, I truly appreciate you doing this and also for staying kind of in the in the hot seat for a little bit there. I know I was testing <laughs> you a sweating. little bit. <laughs> yeah, but it's just, the, uh, it's just the daily nonsense I deal with because I talk about pricing all the time and people push back so hard. People in America, especially people in Europe, it's like this is just crazy nonsense, voodoo, unethical things that you're trying to tell people to do and just shut the F up. It's pretty much what they <laughs> say to me on a regular basis. So I just wanted to share a little bit of that love with you. No, I appreciate it, Chris. I know it's tough love. (laughs) (laughs) If people want to find out more about you, where should they go? Yeah, so the best place to get me is on uh, Twitter. I'm really active on there. So I'm at Tom underscore Hurst. And if you want to send me any DMs about anything we spoke about, that'd be uh, great. Um, You can find out more about my story at uh, tomhurst.com forward slash about. And you can check out my products for freelancers at tomhurst.com forward slash products. Mm-hmm. Now, if you're, for whatever reason, tuning in at an odd time, I was just talking to Tom and he's written a book called Pricing Freelance Projects. It's a $39 resource. It sold over 652 copies. And the prototype of this was a series of tweets he put together that have gone completely viral. It's got something like over 30,000 likes, over 10,000 retweets. And it's one of the reasons why we're talking today. So definitely go check that out. Tom, thanks very much for being a part of the show. Thanks, Chris. I've really enjoyed it. My name's Tom Hurst, and you're listening to The Future. Thanks for joining us this time. If you haven't already, subscribe to our show on your favorite podcasting app and get a new insightful episode from us every week. The Future Podcast is hosted by Chris Doe and produced by me, Greg Gunn. Thank you to Anthony Barrow for editing and mixing this episode. And thank you to Adam Sanborn for our intro music. If you enjoyed this episode, then do us a favor by rating and reviewing our show on Apple Podcasts. It'll help us grow the show and make future episodes that much better. Have a question for Chris or me? head over to thefuture.com slash heychris and ask away. We read every submission and we just might answer yours in a later episode. If you'd like to support the show and invest in yourself while you're at it, visit thefuture.com. You'll find video courses, digital products, and a bunch of helpful resources about design and creative business. 
Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next time.